Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into church history, into the formation of the biblical canon, what books got in the Bible and what books didn't, into the early church, how they worshipped, what they believed, up through the Reformation and until today. And it was then, as I began to look into the history of the church, I encountered the ancient Catholic church. There it was, looming large. And as I began to dig into Catholic theology, the history of the Catholic Church, I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholicism was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with real Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by two fantastic guests, rejoined by two guests, some of my favorites, William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas, Ph.D. These guys have written a book previously on Mary in the Gospels, how we understand Mary, how she was understood by the early church, and they've come back again this episode, this week, to talk about the Eucharist and transubstantiation. They have a fantastic new book on this topic, which covers the same idea, or has the same approach as their last book. It's a fantastic approach. They dig deeply into the Bible, into typology, into prophecy, what the Old Testament is revealed in the New, and how that works in terms of the Eucharist and transubstantiation, and then how the early church, the very first Christians, received this as well. It's a fantastic conversation. It's one of those eye-opening, mind-blowing conversations we have on this show. It really shows this idea in a brand new light. And let's break it down for a minute here for our non-Catholic listeners especially. Transubstantiation is the idea, the Catholic Church believes, that the Eucharist, the elements of communion, the bread and the wine that we, every single Mass, that's the center piece of the Mass, we celebrate this, the Lord's Supper, we believe that those bread, that bread, that wine becomes the actual flesh and blood of Jesus in some kind of miraculous way, right? This was believed since the beginning of the Christian church. The very early Christians believed this. It was kind of defined and explained in more depth at the Council of Trent during the Middle Ages as it kind of developed and a church came to grasp that more and more finely. But this is what the early church believed. We'll see that today. And especially, incredibly, this is found all throughout the Bible. One of those ways that God has always worked with mankind, with humankind, through making things or, or transforming or transubstantiating things from one form into another. It's a common way, you'll see, that God works. And that, that idea is truly mind-blowing. It's an incredible conversation and amazing how Father Kappas and how William Albrecht really trace this out in the Bible and in the early church. It's it's fantastic, guys. You're going to love this conversation. This conversation and all of ours are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to underpin this show financially, make this thing possible at all, and you have my deepest thanks. If you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic for behind-the-scenes exclusive bonuses, draws for books every month, and all kinds of things if you can support this show. 
I try and give back as well. And besides, your money is going towards this show and helping it to reach more and more people, which is the whole mission of this thing, to get the word out, to get the idea, to get really deep understanding of the Catholic Church and these cordial conversations out to as wide an audience as possible. So thank you to you guys as well. For a one-time donation, paypal.me slash cordialcatholic is a place to do that. Thanks, guys. And without any further ado, my fantastic conversation on transubstantiation. Where is it in the Bible? It's a fantastic conversation with William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Uh, I am here with two fantastic guests once again. If you've listened to the podcast for a bit, you've heard these guys before. They're both back on the show with another fantastic book, but I don't want to get ahead of myself just yet. Let me introduce them first. Our first guest is William Albrecht. He's an international speaker and debater with over 65 live and moderate debates under his belt. He appears on uh, EWTN, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and is one of the co-hosts of a fantastic uh, podcast and YouTube channel, Reason and Theology. William has a website dedicated to the early church fathers that includes articles, unique translations, commentaries, and debates on the father. That's at patristicpillars.com. And William's one of the co-authors of two incredible books alongside my other guest, Father Christian Capus, uh, is currently academic dean and professor at St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a number of books and articles and peer-reviewed publications that touch upon Mariology and is cited as one of the top Mariologists in the world. You can study with him, if you want to, in a Master's of Theology from the Theological School online at the Byzantine, at the uh, St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary there in Pittsburgh. I'll put links to that in the show notes. There are two fantastic books. We've talked about one already in this podcast before, is Mary Among the Evangelists, The Definitive Guide for Solving Biblical Questions About Mary, and new, just out, The Secret History of Transubstantiation, Pulling Back the Veil on the Eucharist. Welcome, William. Welcome, Father. Thanks for being here again on the podcast. Now on video interview as well. This is new for us since you guys were here last. Welcome and hello to both of you guys. Thanks for having us. We're thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for having us back on. Well, I am very thrilled to have both of you. We had a, a great conversation last time. And this book is, the, is okay, I'll put it this way. Uh, much of the same in that what you guys are amazing at doing, the both of you, and, and everyone's talking about this, everyone in the, in the, in the spheres that, that we, I think, uh, uh, orbit around or, 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 or go in, I should say, that we are part of, everyone's talking about this. You guys are great at taking these topics that are so fascinating and, and digging into the biblical basis for these things and then tracing those out in the early church and in church history in a way that really isn't happening elsewhere. And that's so rare for, for biblical theology, for historical theology, for, for scripture study. You get a lot of the same sometimes, but you guys, both of you, thank you, because the second book in in this this theme of the amazing work of uncovering you guys are doing, these awesome topics. So thank you <laughs> for your hard work, both of you. Well, thank you very much for... Uh 
kind of really highlighting, I think, the nature uh, of the book. It's uh, interdisciplinary. And uh, you, you uh, may not have been uh, exposed to all the graphs that I was as a young dean who went to uh, dean school uh, to learn how to dean. And uh, what we were presented with was uh, basically after 2008 with the economic crisis that had happened at that time is uh, the liberal arts and, of course, theology fell in there really took a downturn. And so if you wanted to really hold a job, you had to learn to be interdisciplinary. You couldn't just teach your little myopic world that you had uh, been trained in for seven years. You now had to actually realize that there were more things out there. And so I think what's become a real virtue nowadays and what you're seeing a lot of publishing in is that very thing is not sticking to one way of reading a text, but going, as you said, the biblical, the historical and then getting into its reception by later people and how they saw it. And I think that the reason why, at least from my perspective, and I'll let William speak to that, uh, to his ideas, um, uh, from my perspective, uh, the reason why we've been complementary is I approach it mainly interested in what, how I can speak in plain English these the words and the phrases of these ancient texts in a way that is accessible to uh, an average educated reader. Uh, who is maybe a specialist in physics or in medicine or whatever, but not in theology. And then uh, William has such a vast experience of speaking to real uh, people on the ground over the last decades uh, that we have the ability to really talk about our own interdisciplinary life in which we've had to look at so many different facets of the same topics. His from what people on the street and professionals are arguing with him about and me uh, from the perspective of where academia is. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to add on that front, William? That's a great summary of uh, what you're after here. Those are really, really great points there, Father. Thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for that as well, um, uh, Keith. The really, really fantastic points because I recognized a real need before before we came out with a book on Mary, uh, which I'm very we're very proud of because it's reached a lot of people and really helped a lot of people. We've even had Protestants tell us, uh, "Hey, you know, we can get on board with that kind of Mary in that book." And well, that that's the biblical Mary. <laughs> and we've had people tell us the very same thing about the new book, transubstantiation. Here's the one thing that I've noticed, having been in apologetics for quite some time now. I've realized and recognized people hear the term transubstantiation and they can immediately get confused. Maybe even think, well, you know, that kind of language is, you know, the church has already done away with that. The church doesn't believe in that language. And am I forced to believe that? What are we hearing? What is going on there? So not only... Uh, amongst our separated brethren, as you know, uh, uh, brother, but even people within the church, there is a massive need for an understanding on this very topic. So I think the incredible thing, Father reads the Bible like a Greek Christian with his incredible training that he's had. And then I look at the early fathers and we've, we've, every project we work on, we work on it meticulously. And as people may know, we've put out several free articles we eventually come out with a book that contains much more material and is much more expensive on stuff that we put out but we get a feel for okay 
is this a topic that people are interested in? Is this a topic that people understand? And we hear everybody's feedback and the feedback that we receive, that is what helps us realize, look, this is what there is a massive need for. And to be quite honest with you, brother, we looked, uh, uh, we looked online and we said, wow, there really, there are a lot of, we recognize there are a lot of great books out there on the Eucharist, but really as, as our good friend Scott Hahn even said, books on the topic of transubstantiation, there really weren't any. Yeah, I was going to mention Scott Hahn because, of course, he he's so big on the Eucharist, of course, as a convert like myself. Uh, that's where the comparison ends between myself and Scott Hahn. That's where it ends. <laughs> but but uh, I was going to say, like, this is the book that, that he's been looking for, I think, and, and talking about it. And, and, and so, so I'm glad you guys come on and do this. And, of course, it is needed for for Catholics, because survey after survey, poll after poll shows that Catholics don't understand what we even believe as as Catholics, right? I'm a convert, so I came into the church, you know, excited about the Eucharist, what it was and what we say it is a transubstantiation and what that all entails. But so few who are born into the faith, or even those who are poorly catechized as new Catholics, don't understand that. And then especially we have to begin, I think, and I want to ask this as the first question here for real, is explaining what the Eucharist is, being able to, to our non-Catholic Christian, our separated brethren, right? Because we want to, I mean, take myself, for example, as a non-Catholic Christian, as an evangelical for much of my life, if I had known what Catholics believed about the Eucharist earlier, I would have thrown, you know, I would have, I would have just been out of there and right into the Catholic Church, like, screaming and yelling and excited, and you couldn't have held me back. You couldn't have stopped me from taking the Eucharist if you if you wanted to, because I would have been so excited about that. But I didn't encounter Catholics who knew what that was and what it meant for such a long time that finally when I began reading about it for myself and watching videos and, and, and lectures and these kinds of things, you know, I, I couldn't wait to become Catholic, but it took so long to understand what Catholics believe because I didn't meet Catholics who knew what it was. So I want to ask you in a second about transubstantiation in specific, but I want to begin with the question about what is the Eucharist? Because for a non-Catholic Christian listening, and lots of listeners to this show are non-Catholic Christians kind of looking into the Catholic Church, might not even know what we mean by, by the Eucharist. Because, you know, as an evangelical, my Sunday worship service looked like songs, preaching, and then once a month communion, and that was it. So the Eucharist is fundamentally different from most Protestant Christians. So can we start there? What is What do we mean by the Eucharist to begin with? Well, thanks for the question. Um, I'll let uh, William uh, follow me up with his experience of uh, what, what his people are asking him, which, I mean, he's doing all these live shows nowadays, so he knows the pulse of both Protestant and Catholics who happily uh, enjoy his um Zoom classes, which he offers online and whatnot. But uh, from my perspective, uh, we can talk about Eucharist uh, on a couple levels. Uh, One is uh, ritual or ceremony. And um, that oftentimes is is able to be summed up as a combination of scripture readings, but scripture readings which are preparatory for the reception of not Christ as, as a heard word, as gospel, or as someone to be believed in, but as someone to be present somehow in me, and that he makes this claim in John 6, that he is uh, in some way able to be present in his believers in a non-metaphorical way. And ultimately, the Eucharist can be um, 
for me, reduced to a real presence, not a metaphorical or a figurative presence of the entire Christ, um, his body, blood, soul, and divinity, the living resurrected Jesus, uh, who somehow uses what appears to be bread and wine to have a few moments present presence within us. Uh, and he himself in John six compares that to the temporary presence of the manna among the Israelites, which melted away and disappeared rather quickly. It was also a quantitative miracle. If you read the various scriptural descriptions of it, and even first century Jews like uh, Josephus, who, did, who, who liked to talk about it, they emphasized the fact that no matter how much of this manna that you tried to collect, since Jesus calls himself manna or the bread that fell from heaven, uh, it was always the same quantity. And so you have Jesus saying, I am this quantitative miracle. You have Jesus saying, I can really be with you in a way that is not purely in your mind or uh, in a manner of metaphor. That is, uh, I'm with you because you're thinking of me, or I'm with you because you, you, uh, an impression is made of me. No, I'm actually with you in an inexplicable way, which defies the normal quantitative uh, restrictions that we're used to in, in the world of physics. And that's, that's what I would uh, kind of reduce the Eucharist to with the only additive that there's something sacrificial about it. And that is that the same wounds in the resurrected Jesus underneath the appearances of bread and wine, uh, that those same wounds that were uh, at the Emmaus experience, the same wounds that the apostles saw of the resurrected Christ are the same wounds that are the merits of his passion. That is, they're the signs that Jesus did something for us. And every time we celebrate Eucharist and Jesus as this manna is made not metaphorically, but really present. And he really, for some moments is within us when we receive him is that the merits that he already won 2000 years ago on the cross, uh, that can be seen if we could only lift the veil, so to speak, on the Eucharist, we could see the resurrected Jesus and his woundedness and his glorified wounds, uh, then we would know that the Father looks on those merits every time Jesus is made present in the Eucharist, and he applies the richness of those merits won 2,000 years ago in the present moment. Well said. William? What do you want to add? Yeah, well, great, great points that are made by Father. I, I totally agree with everything he put forth. And I, I would add that the one thing that really blew me away, and I know blew Father away as well when we were working on this project, was we frequently hear, okay, well, you know what the Council of Trent says. You know what the what the Church Councils say about transubstantiation. They, you know, we know we recognize that they say that it is a transition of the entire substance of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. But can we find any evidence of that biblically? And can we find it in the early fathers? We frequently hear, as you know, the one thing that we hear so often is that the idea of transubstantiation is a medieval invention that you don't find it in the Bible. Well, as Father brought out incredible examples already, also we are able to find several examples in the early church that show that quite the opposite of it being a medieval invention, by the time we get to the medieval era, the church well before then already recognized that kind of a terminology. In fact, in the controversies that come before we ever arrived to the medieval era, the church had already undergone dark nights, if you will, 
in the sense of battling back heresy. We always hear, well, you know, the churches battle heresy. They did it at Nicaea. They did it at, uh, at, uh, at Ephesus where they defended um, against Christological heresies. Well, guess what? The attack on the Eucharist is also a Christological heresy. And we recognize the very first denial of the Eucharist, brother. And this is amazing. This is incredible. And you can actually read portions of it in the book. You find it in Nestorius. The grand, <laughs> and I've got to be quite honest, it is really the first time you have it categorically denied. And that tells you enough that if even before that, it was being taught in such a clear fashion. And I would add to the point that Father made, which was a fantastic one. People tend to forget that at the heart, at the core of the Eucharist, is the sacrificial nature of it. And we bring it out in our examination in 1 Corinthians, where um, when we recognize that kind of language being utilized there, and it ties in exactly with the language in Luke 22, Matthew chapter 20, 26, Mark 14, uh, all of those gospel accounts of the Last Supper, where we realize we're told that the body is being offered. It is a sacrificial remembrance, that Greek word, anonymesis. So all of this, brother, and, and I, I see you smiling because I know that this is something near and dear to your heart because when you studied this, this probably really helped pull you even deeper into, deeper towards the ancient faith, didn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's true. And, and I can remember, I can I can actually picture myself. So what I, what I used to do before we had kids, uh, my wife and I both were evangelicals, and I was looking to the Catholic Church. I would stay up till till 2, 3 a.m. Uh, back in the early days of YouTube, looking at these RCIA videos on YouTube, going through, uh, it was Our Lady of Good Counsel uh, in Plymouth, Michigan. They used to put out Father John Ricardo, who I thanked one time. I met him at a conference and thanked him for, for uh, his RCIA class. And he said, what do you mean? You're from Canada. And I said, no, 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 online. I did the whole class online, two years of YouTube videos. And then I did my own RCA in person. But I'd watch these videos, and I, I can remember clear as day sitting in sitting in our little office in our in our first house we used to have, watching this video and getting to the Eucharist, and my mind was just blown, William. You, just to understand what Catholics believe that because we as evangelicals we we do communion, we'd say that this is symbolic: the uh, bread, the wine, usually grape juice and little tiny little containers. That was symbolic, and and, and the pastor often would even add words to to holy scripture and say i know this is my this is my body or this this bread which represents my body right it, which is not in the, <laughs> the actual text of scripture i mean paul i would hear at, at, at the church i would go to i would hear this is going to shock you gentlemen i would hear this means my body oh yeah 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 right but and and the crazy thing is that this is not part of the biblical text. I mean, the scripture itself, and I want to go there next in, in a minute, doesn't say these things. These are these are add-ons. And we could go down all kinds of rabbit holes here, but something you said just is, is I think, gosh, is so important that don't you think that if the Eucharist is what the Catholic Church says it is, if it really is the body and blood, soul, divinity of Christ, he wants to give that to us to become more like him. Isn't that the thing that the, the, the enemy would want to take away from as many Christians as possible. And so I think of all of our non-Catholic Christian friends who don't have this. Like, I don't think I'm being dramatic to say, isn't this kind of a, a massive satanic conspiracy of some kind here? Like it just seems like one of those things that, of course, that's where what you want to get out of the hands of well-meaning Christians because th that is the, the manna 
for the journey. I mean, I'm not crazy. Am I William in thinking these things? No, no, you're not. You're not. And in fact, I would add that uh, not not too long back, a briefly comment, and then let let, let father add to him. Uh, not too long ago, father. Uh, when he was working on um, on an article, an article expanding on the kind of research that has been done, he recognized that in in the very writings of St. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, we recognize that Paul is making a fascinating discovery. We, we The audience is making a fascinating discovery because he's showing you that the Lord's table is the table where we worship our God, and it is not a table that should be um, that should have sacrifices that are offered up to idols. Well, what are the sacrifices that are offered up to idols? People are committing the very sin of idolatry. But at our table, the table that we partake of the Eucharist at, our table, we offer up the sacrifice because this is our very God, our Lord and our Savior. And I know Father, I know Father is definitely very interested in adding to that because that was an incredible discovery. You really haven't heard a whole lot of that, but isn't that an amazing, amazing analogy made there by St. Paul, Father? Yeah, thanks, uh, William. First um, Corinthians 10 is, uh, is I think, underutilized. Uh, eventually, we'll be putting out an article out on that. I think we're going to save all the uh, gritty details for William uh, to finish a debate in March so that after he gets a debate on March done and he kind of shows the world where we're at um, for the first time uh, on putting this together systematically, uh, you'll see it in all its glory and then the day or two after we'll put out the article for free. But uh, the basic premise is, is that if you actually – St. Paul was, of course, a wordsmith, uh, and uh, he was trained as such. He was trained as a raider, uh, as a public speaker an orator. And um, what he does is he likes to, in 1 Corinthians 10, contrast the idea, well, there is this offering partaking of idle food, and then there's our partaking of food. There's the partaking with demons, and then there's the, uh, I'm sorry, the sacrificing of demons, and then there's our participation at the table of the Lord. The interesting thing that he does is he contrasts what we are doing with demons uh, demons offerings, which he says they are not offering a sacrifice to God, which implies we are offering a sacrifice to God. And what's really interesting is, is this exact phrase about offering a sacrifice to God, because he's putting them as comparisons that uh, eating demon idol offerings is not a sacrifice to God. And then he contrasts that to what we're doing, which implies of course, in the same breath of air, that we are sacrificing to God, he uses a, if not the exact same phraseology, two or three of the exact same words in the same verb in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, which talks about us eating from an altar uh, from which those who partake of the tabernacle, the Jewish altar, have no right to eat. Once you put these two verses together, uh, it one argues that there's a, a basic sim- similarity in theology. So the author of Hebrews, if we want to believe that it is a secretary of St. Paul, it begins to make a little bit more sense because they have the exact same theology. Uh, but then secondly, what that shows for us is that the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist is very much embedded into the fabric of the Bible. <laughs> That's fantastic. This is such great stuff, guys. I love having you on the show. I want to dig into dig into Scripture 
next, but I want to first ask this question just so listeners have a bit of a more understanding for those who aren't familiar. Can we just define what we mean by transubstantiation? What is happening when we say that uh, the Eucharist, uh, you know, the transubstantiation takes place? What do we mean by that? Okay. Um, William gave us a taste of Trent's definition. Um, and w- what was the most shocking in our book? Um, we did this painful exercise at the beginning, which I even apologize to the reader for uh, initially and say, I hate having to give you definitions, but I kept it to only like two pages and told them that they could come back and eat, reference these easy definitions later if they forgot what they meant. But uh, what we were really shocked at was that the definition that uh, William gave us, which was the conversion or the change or the transformation of one whole kind of substance into another whole kind of substance, um, that that basic definition of Trent is present in every single major writer uh, that attests to the Eucharist or to Jewish exegesis, Jewish interpretation of the passages used by the fathers for the Eucharist. And what we might add to transubstantiation because there are different kinds of transubstantiation. So, um, you don't have to be a Christian to hold for the use of that term. It was used in meteorology, as you would know from the book uh, in the ancient world. So uh, there's meteorological uh, transubstantiation. Well, if I'm going to use it in a religious sense, it also has the idea that comes along with it that whatever this one substance is, let's call it one of the substances on the periodic chart. So iron substance. And let's say that that substance uh, trans is transformed, let's say into maybe a living being, we'll call it cat substance. It's translated into feline substance. Uh, that transition isn't by a chemical process where I've figured out a way, uh, like an alchemist to change iron into cats. Um, but, uh, there's probably a YouTube video for that, by the way, but, uh, uh instead that it's an immediate change. And it's a change by divine intervention. So it's considered immediate and miraculous, and it goes beyond the powers of iron in the natural world, as the laws of nature are known, to actually become cat. And so the idea then is whole substance, one, iron, becomes whole substance, two, cat. The change is miraculous and immediate. Now, there's a, there's a tiny little technicality that I'll add to it, um, but true and proper transubstantiation, transubstantiation also means um, this gets a little bit more technical in, in, in the later Christian world, not at the very beginning. But the original basic elements, stuff of iron, whatever those little particles and subatomic particles are down there, that those are actually replaced by new subatomic and atomic particle, particles in the cat. And that's the only major difference that requires a miracle because we're used to uh, things decaying or being combined like atoms into molecules or one molecule becomes another molecule by interactions. We're not used to is the entire matter of a molecule 
being replaced by a brand new molecule instantaneously. That is the big trick when it comes to transubstantiation. <laughs> Very good. And in our context, of course, we're not we're not in a in a mass transforming iron into cats, which would be an interesting uh, Vatican II improvisation, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what we say as Catholics, what the Church tells us, is what is the elements, right? The the sorry, the bread and the wine is becoming Christ, uh, body, soul, blood, and and divinity. Is that right to say? Sure. Uh, William, you want to pick up on any of uh, your reflections on that? Yeah, yeah, totally. That, is, that was fantastic, by the way, Father. And I, I'm, I'm glad that Father added to that because when we look at the definition given to us by Trent, at times people may wonder, well, is Trent getting that from the medieval era? Is it found in any of the early fathers, or does it come at a a much later period in church history? But as you're going to find out, when you look at the book, you find that the language is it's right there, right there in the Bible. You know, you can find it there, especially in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, where we where we read, "Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord." He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not recognizing the Lord's body. I want to emphasize that Greek word diakrino right there in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. So what is the point that is being made here? I would recommend that people look, hearken back to right before that in 1 Corinthians 10, 3, 4, where we read, they that drank the spiritual rock that followed them, that rock was Christ. Compare that with Nehemiah, I believe, uh, chapter 9. So as the rock was the sacred name, or Christ in the wilderness, if you will, so the bread and the wine is become the body and the blood of Christ. This is the message that St. Paul is trying to put forth. That is why Paul says you must discern, recognize the Lord's body. Is the rock turned to water, and the bread and the wine turned to the body and the blood? This language was recognized by the early fathers. We see incredible fathers like the amazing St. Ambrose, who teaches transubstantiation without a doubt. And we find really, really, brother, an incredible chain that goes right there to the early fathers. And it goes all throughout church history. That is why the language being utilized by the popes, by the bishops, that goes all the way to um, uh, to medieval era can be found before. Indeed, one chapter that I think people are going to be blown away by, and I know you, who you love to delve into apologetics, one particular area, and I, I want to let Father kind of briefly touch upon it, one area where as Catholics, I've got to be honest, brother, I've been doing apologetics for maybe maybe two, de- two decades now, and close to two decades, and we've been taking it on the chin for quite some time when it comes to Pope Gelasius. People will say, well, look, I don't care if you Catholics can pull out. You know, maybe we'll give you Ambrose. Uh, You know, maybe we'll concede Augustine. But hey, you got yourself a bit of a bind there, Catholic, because Pope Gelasius doesn't believe that there was any change in the elements. He would have been a proto-Protestant. So you Catholics, you're in trouble. Pope Gelasius is our guy. Well, we deal with that in depth in the book. And as far as I'm aware, I'm not aware of any other book that has given it that due attention, not because nobody has really tried to, but I think maybe the amount of stuff that was at the fingertips of the few people that touched upon that controversy didn't allow them to really delve as deep as we do 
in our book into this matter. So were you, uh, Keith, aware of the Gelasius argument or no? Oh, I, I'm aware of arguments. I mean, so uh, this is a fantastic uh, discussion here to unpack because what I'm aware of, uh, this is one of those examples, of course, among others that I encounter. I mean, I have not done the apologetics that William has done for two decades. You look great, William, by the way, for, for two decades of apologetics under your belt. You're looking good. <laughs> but what um, what I've encountered with the discussions of, of evangelical friends, with other Protestants, is you get this sense of, Okay, so you guys believe in the Eucharist, believe in transubstantiation, but not all the church fathers believe that. And then they'll pull kind of mm. quotes out of context of different, uh, different church fathers, different popes, like you're suggesting here, right? And say, look, this comment here by this particular person shows you that 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 Catholics weren't universal in their belief of this, even if that church father later on says something different, or says something more substantial later on, or says symbolic here, but means symbolic in the sense that the ancient Greeks would have used that term, which isn't the way that we always use that term. Like, there's all these qualifications, but they'll point to these lists that include, you know, popes and church fathers and say, look, here's an example of of the church not being universal in believing this. This guy had it right. Everyone else had it wrong. That's why we as Protestants follow this guy and cling to this guy now and here, right? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, when uh, William brought to me the Gelasius argument, uh, basically he said, look, um, in the annals of, a, of modern English apologetics, this is a hopeless. So if you can do anything with it, um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know if there, there will ever be sort of a reward that comes along uh, with kind of dispossessing people of old ideas, but uh, he was... Uh, willing to give me praise or thanksgiving as a result of it. And um, I took a look at it and I just said, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't really have much of a problem if Gelasius doesn't understand the Eucharist well. I said, I've already looked at the document and the document is a, is a private theological writing, just sort of like Benedict's um, trilogy on the, uh, on the uh, scriptures, right? Um, as Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, in the preface of that, uh, I remind uh, some of the readers in the article that William uh, published on his uh, patristic pillars on Pope Gelasius, I said, well, you know, Pope, Pope Benedict uh, was very theologically clear. If you don't like what I wrote, you can disagree with it. So we're already kind of dealing with a document by Gelasius where, yeah, he, he's very forceful in what he thinks is the case, but he has to argue because he's not making a papal decretal, as we call it, or an official letter proclaiming uh, a religious truth, he's writing as Pope Benedict does, a theological uh, opinion on uh, how he sees the problems of his day. And in, in that, uh, we were, I was led to believe, first of all, that there was a, an old Protestant that's a little bit younger than the reality uh, of who wrote this, uh, named Francis Turretin, uh, from his 1600s, who uh, claimed that this uh, proved something like a Calvinistic Eucharist. But I just said, you know what? Uh, Google search engines are, are better than anything that I keep finding that um, anti-Catholic apologetics can come up with. So I'm just going to search a couple you know, Latin phrases here that are in this original document. And I, lo and behold, it took me about five seconds to find that, uh, well, maybe five <laughs> minutes, five minutes, uh, to find that actually Luther's companion Melanchthon was responsible uh, for the argument 
against Pope Gelasius. And his argument wasn't that uh, Pope Gelasius didn't believe that it was the body and blood of Christ, because of course Lutherans believe it's the body and blood of Christ. It was that he didn't believe it was the transubstantiated body and blood of Christ. He thought it was the body and blood of Christ in a different way. So what was re- the first thing that I was struck by is, hmm, that's interesting. We didn't do our research to know that the original reading of this by sort of a respectable uh, Greek and Latin reading Protestant, Melanchthon, is that it does prove the body and blood of Christ, except uh, it doesn't just it doesn't prove transubstantiation because there seems to be some difficult terminology here. Uh, and the second thing that I ended up looking into was nobody had actually read the whole document. Uh, there had been a couple modern liturgists, as we would expect, like a, a Jesuit liturgist by the name of Kilmartin, who had read the whole document and had made an improved analysis of the whole thing. Uh, but basically what I ended up finding as one who was perfectly comfortable with Pope Gelasius, just like Pope Benedict being wrong about something uh, with his trilogy, um, was that Gerlasius had actually uh, argued uh, through a series of paragraphs prior to the money quote what he really meant. And once I translated the money quote, well, um, a lot of people that had been posting this probably got very, very sad because then you got to see, <laughs> well, what, what, what Pope Gerlasius was actually talking about. And uh, what he ended up talking about it's a bit complicated, and we try to make it as easy as possible, both in the free article online as well as in the book. And basically what Pope Gelasius was talking about was he was trying to come up with an early way of understanding how you can have a substance change. And he was trying to use a comparison between when Jesus' mom, Mary, in utero, when Jesus' flesh was changed from, in, in our language, an ovum, to a divine person. There's a lot of change going on there. What did that look like? And he's trying to use that as his point of reflection in order to try to understand that maybe something happens that's not dissimilar from that when bread and wine change. So uh, it was a lot to do about nothing. Uh, Basically 500 years of nobody bothering to translate it into English so that we could all see that there was actually a really good thought process going on here. It is, it's primitive and it's not, um, I think fully developed, but there's nothing there that I couldn't live with. You guys do the hard work, right? That no one else is doing it. It's true. I mean, that's why you guys deserve the high praise for this fantastic stuff. Well, thanks. So somebody's recognized all the blood, sweat and tears. That's good. <laughs> At least one person and all the listeners to the show. There you go. I want to dig into scripture because you mentioned this earlier, William, you guys, you guys call this the golden thread that kind of marvelously weaves through history of of the Bible, of the church, of the Old Testament, New Testament, into the church fathers. And I want to dig in some scriptures here. I mean, you can think of John 6 and uh, and 1 Corinthians, surely, but I'm guessing we could go back even further if we wanted to, to the beginning of, of this thread, because you guys really dig into examples when things are transubstantiated in the Bible and God using this as a framework. Gosh, I love this stuff, guys, because we, we look at, someone says to me, I remember I had Lawrence Feingold on my show back in episode like 16. I don't know what I was doing with him on the show like two years ago. I I didn't even know what I was even doing with the podcast. I have no idea what I was even doing. And I had him on the show and it was on the Visible Church. And I asked him the question and I said, okay, Dr. Feingold, do we have any examples of of a visible structured church in the Old Testament, thinking that this was not a typology that we'd find 
very well defined as the, as the Catholic Church is fulfills in the New Testament and in, in the in, in church history. And and naively as I was back then, he said, "Well, you know what? Almost almost too obvious of a typology to to see in the Jewish people. It's almost too obvious." And I think this is similar. Once you begin digging into, you know, the way that God operates, always choosing the underdog, always working with somebody who who has some kind of flaw, setting this this Jewish people up in a hierarchical structure then that's fulfilled in the New Testament, we find this typology of transubstantiation in the Old Testament, then in the New Testament. You guys dig so deeply into this, how God uses this as a thing in the Bible. Can we, I don't know where you want to start with scripture, you want to go back that far in the Old Testament? I'm kind of I'm kind of forcing your hand a little bit here, but you you sure. guys you guys choose. But let's unpack the idea of transubstantiation from the scriptures because there's just so much here to mind that I think Catholic listeners are are missing. Never mind our non-Catholic listeners who this would have as an evangelical just sailed over my head entirely. But here it is, just resplendent throughout scriptures, right? Why, why don't you, William, start out with a couple favorite Old Testament uh, things that we investigated that uh, are scriptural that uh, you liked for arguments for substantial change? I really, really, and I'm, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to go to write to one of my personal favorite church fathers in St. Ambrose, and I want you to hear the scripture that he goes to. This, this to me, when he read it, and you realize what he's hearkening to, and then you recognize that we include those exact examples in the book, and then you recognize that other fathers also use those examples. Well, you really realize that you're on solid ground when you're believing this. And Ambrose, he, he makes a fantastic point. He says, perchance thou, O neophyte, mayest say, I see something different. How do you claim that this is the body of Christ which I receive? It still remains for us to prove this, he says. Let us prove that this body is not what nature formed, but what the blessing consecrated, and that there is a greater force in a blessing than in nature, because by a blessing even nature itself is transmutated. Then Ambrose says, uh, after claiming that he will show how grace transmutes natures, he then goes into the examples that to me, brother, they're mind-blowing. And he's, this is what he says. He's taken directly from the Old Testament. Moses held the staff. He cast it down, and it became a serpent. Again, he took hold of the tail of the serpent, and it returned to its natural state of a staff. Dostile then, see that both the serpent and the staff twice underwent a change of nature by prophetic grace. This is amazing. And there's even more examples. The rivers of Egypt ran with a pure flood of water. Suddenly blood began to well out from the beans of their sources, and there was not that men could drink in the rivers. Again at the prophet's prayer, again at the prophet's prayer, the blood in the rivers ceased. The natural state of waters came back. Moses touched the rock. We heard about this just a little while ago, didn't we? Moses touching the rock, and water flowed from the rock. By the way, the exact example that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Did not grace act contrary to nature, so that the rock poured forth water which it had not by nature? Marah was the most bitter stream, so that the thirsty people could not drink. Moses cast wood into the water, and the nature of the water lost its bitterness, which was tempered by a sudden infusion of grace. We observe, therefore, 
that grace is of greater power than nature. But if a human blessing was powerful enough to change nature, what do we say of the divine consecration itself? The very words of the Lord and Savior Act. Will not the word of Christ be powerful enough to change the characters of the elements? And here is, to me, the turn of force, the incredible point of Ambrose right here, brother. The word of Christ could make out of nothing that which was not. Can, cannot, cannot it then change the things which are into that, into that which they were not. For to give new natures to things is quite more wonderful than to change their nature. That is the heart of everything we're saying. And if you notice the great St. Ambrose, Father Ambrose to the great St. Augustine, doctor of the church, he's using several Old Testament examples to show, hey, we've got biblical and historical examples of this several times over. Anything to add to that, Father? That, I mean, that's that's uh, just a mouth-watering meal there. That's just fantastic stuff to dig into there. Anything to add, Father? An early one that uh, you uh, probably saw in the book, Keith, that you probably found shocking would be uh, the pillar of salt. Yeah, so uh, we all know uh, that Lot's wife, at least when I, my dad read me Bible stories when I was going to sleep, uh, of course, the children's version. Uh, I remember very well uh, Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt. Of course, behind that, who would have thought that there was so much uh, fulfillment in the New Testament, uh, not only by the fathers, but by uh, the very gospel writers themselves. So, for example, in Luke 3, John the Baptist, who is uh, near the Dead Sea, right where the pillar of salt is, and who has Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, uh, trying to get baptized from him, he corrects them by not only saying, you brood of vipers, because they're insincere, and they're not following the true nature of the law, uh, but he also calls them brood of vipers because he says that they will uh, they are not recognizing that there's a future judgment to come. And this is all very significant by this Dead Sea with the where the uh, pillar of salt is, because he then tells them, don't tell me that you are children of Abraham, because God can raise out of stones children of Abraham. And we maybe don't have a point of reference for that, but the first century uh, Jews did. They wrote a scriptural commentary, uh, which includes translation and commentary called a targum. And that first century targum is quite specific when it talks about Lot's wife, that she was also turned to stone, salt mixed with stone, the rock formations. And it says that uh, this speaking about Lot's wife turning to stone was uh, a case in which she would be turned to stone until the coming resurrection. What's really interesting is St. John the Baptist is using this knowledge among the Pharisees and the common people that that pillar of salt is awaiting to be transformed back into Lot's wife at the resurrection on the last day when the Son of Man shall come. And of course, for them the last day, they did not realize that there would be two resurrections. First, the resurrection of Jesus, along with several of his companions. So we hear in Matthew's gospel. And then the final resurrection. So at Jesus's first fruits or first resurrection, uh, we see that uh, this is signified, this, this resurrection of the body, and you may say to yourself, well, what does that have to do with, with the Eucharist? Well, notice, she is one kind of substance. She's rocks and salt. Uh, and she will become, on the day of resurrection, according to the 
uh, first century translations of the Hebrew Bible, uh, a second kind of substance, which will shall be changed back into the body that she had. Of course, this is the very idea of resurrection, that no matter how uh, petrified our bones are, is that God can transform them into a fleshy substance. And what we see is that when John St. John corrects the Pharisees, he says, don't say that you have Abraham as your father. God can raise up, he uses a resurrection word, to let them know he's talking about that salt pillar. God can raise up from children of Abraham stones. And you ask to yourself, well, why does he say children of Abraham? Why doesn't he say he can raise out of Lot's wife? Well, Abraham rescued Lot and rescued Lot's wife and family, and they became part of his household temporarily until, of course, he released them. Uh, and Lot was kind of embarrassed by the whole thing because, I mean, Abraham didn't even have to give him back all of his stuff because now Abraham owned everybody. I mean, he had they were they were war booty, but he treated them humanely. So to this extent, uh, actually, Lot's wife was a member of Abraham's household temporarily. She is a child of Abraham. Now, what's very, very interesting about this then is that the idea of changing rocks into children is not to be taken metaphorically. And you say, well, this this could be Semitic hyperbole, as they like to say. You know, he's just exaggerating. Well, the problem is that Satan doesn't seem to have an ethnic identity. And he also, I think in Matthew 4, asked Jesus to turn bread uh, or stone into bread. So what we're starting to see is there's this whole obsession that whatever the coming Messiah's role is, it has something to do with taking one kind of substance and making it into, by a miraculous intervention, another kind of substance. Satan was probably testing Jesus to see if he was a manna maker. Uh, and the reason why we know that is because Jesus says to Satan that you will only live by the every word that comes from the mouth of God, which is an exact citation in the Old Testament of eating manna, uh, because eating manna was God's word produced the manna from heaven. What I'll leave you off with then is if turning rocks into people and turning rocks into bread is an anticipation of Jesus's mission, it's also an anticipation of John 6, where Jesus calls himself the manna, the person who's going to transform substances into himself. Now listen to Psalm 147, uh, verses 17 and 18, which uh, talks about this. It says, uh, that the Lord casts out hail from heaven like morsels of bread flesh. Morsels of bread flesh, if you have a good translation. Um, it says, how the Lord casts ice or hail from heaven like morsels of bread flesh. Who can stand by his cold? So now we're supposed to be thinking that Jesus is cold? Why? Or manna is cold? Why? Well, it's in the heavens. It's up in the clouds. Hail and ice... Clearly, it must be cold up there. Uh, they didn't have to be a, uh, you know, masters in meteorology to figure that out in those days. Uh, he sends out his word, and it melts flesh. He causes his wind to blow, and the waters flow. The, uh, and what we, we're seeing here is that we're already learning from Psalm uh, 147 that whatever manna is, it's both ice and snow, because it rain down in crystalline form. But at the same time, manna is actually uh, uh, bread. So how can it be flesh and bread at the same time? Uh, well, this is the mystery. How is it flesh and bread at the same time? And then finally, uh, to sum things up, 
when the book of wisdom weighs in on what passages like the psalm means, wisdom 1919, it tells us that in heaven, this icy substance was transmuted. Another way that we can say that is transubstantiated in wisdom 1919, that up in those clouds, when water changed into manna and hailed down upon the Israelites like dew or frost in the morning, that it was transubstantiated or uh, metabolite is the, is the word that's used or metabolo. And, uh, that this substance, when it was transformed, uh, it fell to earth, uh, and it is called a heavenly food, just like Jesus calls himself in wisdom, 1999, And so what we're seeing now is whoever claims to be this heavenly food also claims that he was transubstantiated. It's, it can't get any clearer than that. Uh, and of course we go over all the evidence in the book, but, uh, it's passage after passage that blew our minds um, all the way through to Revelation where we see manna all over the place. You you can't start reading Revelation now without getting smacked in the face with the manna about every chapter. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, you guys do a fantastic job. I've mentioned over and over again. I believe it because it's true. I, I'm saying because it it's true. It's everywhere. Like you say, it's everywhere, like, truly. And once you begin to, to find this golden thread, as you call it, you find it everywhere throughout the scriptures. And it's Marcus Grodi who talks about, uh, you know, of course, the host of The Journey Home, famous convert himself, talks about those verses that you don't see as an evangelical, as a non-Catholic. And gosh, you can extend this to even Catholics. You know, so many Catholics don't believe in, in the Eucharist in as the Catholic Church defines it. They just don't understand, are, are poorly catechized. But once you begin to, to see this in one place, you begin to see it everywhere. It's how God works in the Old Testament. It's how, I love, William, how you brought in the fact that the, even these church fathers, these early Christians, are interpreting the, the Old Testament and the Eucharist through this certain lens. I mean, I was going to ask you to, to dig into the church fathers, but I mean, you already have, and, and it's in the New Testament when it refers to the Old Testament. It's in, it's in John the Baptist, as you said, Father, when he refers to the, the, um, the Old Testament. Like, it's, it's just constantly coming up and being referred to through 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 fathers and New Testament writers and New Testament figures and Jesus himself and then in Revelation at the end of the New Testament, it's it's everywhere, isn't it, William? It sure is. And really, what a great point you bring up there, because the very fact that we find it everywhere in the early fathers is the very reason why when we and I'm going to read this to give the audience a little bit of a teaser that they, they'll find it even more, much more in depth in the book. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to tell you who says it. Jesus says of the bread, it is my body. He says not that the bread is not bread, and that his body is not a body, but he has said demonstrably, bread and body, which is in the substance. And then we get to the shocking big bad part. But we are persuaded that the bread is bread in nature and in substance. That is the heretic Nestorius. (laughs) That is why we can expect such an outcry and we did recognize that there was an outcry because when there is something that the church has not taught when there is a deviation from the truth when there is an attack on christology on things so essential as the truth of transubstantiation then the church says 
we've got to put our foot down and we've got to say, look, this is not the way the church has classically interpreted the scriptures. This is not what we read in the Bible. And that is why we recognize the fathers. In fact, there's, there's many more. We deal with many, many more fathers, including, by the way, Father has done a masterful job. Some translations that didn't even exist in English, you can find them for the very first time in the book. So really the the amount of patristic evidence, the amount of biblical evidence, it really is the reason why. And I want to add one other point, brother. And to me, it, it blows me away because our book also has portions that were written we have two contributors, an Eastern Orthodox scholar that contributed and a Syriac Orthodox scholar. Now, what was the point? Why did we want to reach out to other representatives when we wanted our book to have the three most ancient branches of Christianity represented in the book? And we sought out top-notch scholars. We have portions. We have chapters written by them. And in the end, we can say the most ancient branches of Christianity, they believed in this teaching. The very heart of it, they believed in it. And as far as I know, I don't think there's any other book out there that does have that kind of contribution. And I really think people will be very, very edified by it. And one from a Canadian. Thank you very much. So I appreciated that. The Canadian, I appreciate the Canadian content. Opened yep. the book and I went, oh, University of Toronto. Very good. Uh, yeah, very good. I love that. And that's the thing. This is where this is where it really lands for me. And I hope that the the non-Catholic Christian listeners to this podcast and, and viewers of this video will, will get this. Because it's so important to underscore, as you have here, William, that we're looking, we're, we're talking about the most ancient traditions of Christianity that believed this. It's it's evident from the unpacking of, of the Old Testament references and the New Testament figures who speak to the Old Testament and, and the typological connections here. It, they're, they're very, very obvious. But then we don't stop there because the most ancient traditions also interpret it the same way. It isn't as if those early Christians went, yeah, well, it, it looks like there's connections in the Bible, and it looks like John the Baptist says this, and it looks like this pillar of salt is this, and we see the snake turning into a staff, and vice versa, and the blood flowing, but we believe it's symbolic, and that's all it is, right? We, we don't find that. What we find is this testament right away from the very first Christians that this is what we believe, and then... Years, a millennium and a half later, we see a deviation, and then from there, this kind of breaking down of what the church always believed in. But if we, if we, as you guys have done here in this book, study the earliest traditions, not just from the the you know the Western Latin Catholic you know point of view, but looking at all these other ancient Christian traditions, believe the same thing, right? And uh, we don't even have to exclude Jewish traditions of interpretation, as you know. Yeah, that's a fantastic point, too. Absolutely. So, I mean, when we talk about older being better, yeah, we want to find those those first sources and reference and compare that to what we believe now. And we would have, as evangelicals, added, whether intentionally, unintentionally, based on what we kind of inherited, the word symbolic and a symbolic understanding of communion of the last supper but that is not that is not we're, we're then chucking out all this typology all the early church we're chucking out all the, these fantastic 
obvious references to transubstantiation that you guys have put forth in this book here. And what a problematic thing we're doing there, aren't we? Yeah, really, it would be very problematic to uh, to kind of erase the massive amount of evidence that we've got. And really, really, it is a massive amount of evidence that you find in the early church fathers that show that really, as, as the fathers were very clear in utilizing very specific language when it comes to the Eucharist, they recognized what was happening there. This is why we have such amazing fathers as the great St. Ignatius of Antioch, Bishop of Antioch, who said, I don't care for any kind of, you know, normal food. I desire the bread of God. He wanted the bread of of his Lord and Savior. That is why he said, I want the bread of God. And you've got father after father after father. I think the one thing that maybe people tend to sort of kind of forget is this is an incredible, as you brought up a chain link that goes to the very beginning. Who is Ignatius of Antioch? Who is he? Well, we talk about the Gospel of John in our book. We talk about it at length. We talk about the book of Revelation at length. And we know that St. Ignatius of Antioch was taught and trained by the Apostle John. Well, you would have thought that if he was taught and trained by John, well, he, he kind of would have known what the Gospel of John meant. He kind of would have known what the book of Revelation meant. And he kind of wouldn't have been so crazy when he says that he desires the bread of God because the Eucharist is truly the flesh of Christ. <laughs> Indeed. We could talk for hours about this. Uh, it, it's fantastic stuff. The book is fantastic. I want to know, is there anything else you want to say to wrap this up that you think that listeners need to know? Give them a little teaser or a trailer for, for some bigger, bigger content in the book there. What's anything else, any loose ends you want to tie up here, Father? Uh, I would just say that accessibility is an issue. In other words, uh, what we have endeavored to do, as with the Mary book, uh, is simplify everything. That is, uh, use nice meat and potatoes words that we would expect out of a newspaper uh, to use words that any professional or blue-collar worker out there is used to seeing when they read their favorite things uh, on the Internet. And we want to avoid uh, multiplying names and, and not giving dates and those sorts of things. So we, we sought above all things for readability and your ability to walk through it with, with yes, an attentive read, but at the end of the day, uh, to take you on a kind of journey of history uh, of, of thinking in both the Latin world, the Greek world, and even, to a great extent, the Jewish and uh, Syriac worlds. And it all culminates in what you and I uh, find ourselves, um, whether knowingly or not unknowingly, being part of, and that is a church that has defined transubstantiation in the 16th century, and that we find it the whole story there in plain English. Oh, very good. William, anything to add? Last words on this uh, this fantastic topic? We're thrilled that people are so interested, and we would love for them to check out the book. Really check out everything that we're doing. Uh, we, we've got a whole lot that we're doing, a lot of projects we're doing, and God willing, much more coming down the line, much more book projects that we're working on. Uh, and, and really just check out everything that we're working on. Keep an eye out because really – God willing, we're going to really dig even deeper into Scripture and many more issues. Scripture, the early church fathers, 
These are important issues that we recognize people that would like the answers to them in, you know, kind of very easy to understand, readable material. And it really is our desire to get that out for the people. And really, really, all praise and all glory goes to our Lord and Savior, to our triune God. And we're thrilled with the, with the kind of reception we've gotten. And we hope we can edify more people. <laughs> Amen. And please don't stop. Don't stop, guys. Keep going. We, want, <laughs> we all want more. Uh, William, your site is patristicpillars.com. What would people find there if they visited that site? They're going to find a ton of really, really good material, really good stuff that we find from the early church fathers. I linked to New Advent there. So they're going to find great translations that are totally free there and several, several free or, uh, articles that I've worked on with Father, they can go and they can check it out right there, right there in patristicpillars.com. And they can even check out, um, uh, they go to the blog, it is linked there, and a ton of debates I've done totally free for them to go and check out right there. <laughs> Fantastic. Father, anything that you want to point people to towards to find anything else that you've done? Where do you want to point them towards? Pretty much all the stuff that I offer for free, which is quite a bit, anything I can get away with copyright-wise is on uh, academia.edu. You just search my full name uh, as it'll appear on your show uh, on academia.edu. And I've also recently started a Patreon uh, page, which um, if you're able to advertise that, that would be uh, wonderful. Uh, if not, um, you can also find uh, that on patristicpillars.com. Uh, William has it there. And the idea is to help me um, deal with increasing costs. So we're now, our next book, you said Don't Stop, will be on um, Matthew sixteen eighteen, the Petrine office, all the Petrine texts. <clears throat> but now I'm running into two and $300 commentaries that I can't justify our library buying. So any, <laughs> any kind of help that I can get from people, I'm perfectly willing to take. Absolutely. I'll put links to all those in the show notes, guys, because we want to keep these, these, these books rolling off the presses. It's fantastic work. Thank you to both of you for being here today on the show. Thank you for this, the work you're doing for the church. I want to say God bless the both of you and uh, Father in your, in your ministry and your priesthood, uh, William in the work you do, and together in these fantastic book projects. You guys, it's amazing stuff, and we, we as your loyal readership are just humbled before the, the font of knowledge you are imparting to us. So thank you both, and God bless the both Thanks of you. Thanks so much, and we're so grateful to the church that's given us all this wisdom. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well said. Thank you so much. Well, that was a fantastic episode. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I really love talking to those two guys, Father and William. It's always a fantastic conversation. They, they bring this depth of knowledge and this insight to the scriptures that, I mean, you talk about, and I've, I've had this conversation before with different friends of mine in the Catholic sphere, different authors and theologians and bloggers and evangelists and apologists. It's rare that you have people doing scholarship these days that's uncovering truly new or truly lost things, things that were kind of lost the sands of time. Usually scholarship kind of goes around the same ideas and, and, and is valuable for all kinds of reasons, but these guys are really bringing to the fore some kind of lost things that we've lost in church history that the early church discovered and knew, and it's there in the Bible typologically and, and, and prophecy and in and, and allegory and all these things and kind of disappeared. 
So I love that they're bringing these new things to the fore again. It's it's fabulous stuff. It's amazing stuff, guys. I love it. TheCordialCatholic.com is my website. CordialCatholic at gmail.com. Send me your feedback. I love hearing from you guys. Write to all the emails I can as soon as I can. At CordialCatholic on Twitter. TheCordialCatholic on Facebook. And YouTube.com slash TheCordialCatholic to watch this episode as well. Please do like, follow, subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. Those ratings and reviews also help to push the podcast out to new people. And tell a friend, please. Email a link to this show to a friend. Text to their friend. Send a DM on Instagram. Let them know that you're listening and they should listen too. That's how the podcast spreads and grows and accomplishes its mission. Patreon.com slash Catholic to support this show. And thanks, guys. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.